welcome to History Sleuth, a podcast exploring the development of history and culture and current events. My name is Adelaide, and today we're going to talk about the legend of Anastasia. But before we get into that, if you're on Twitter, follow me at Sleuth History to get updates about when I post new episodes, and make sure also to follow History Sleuth on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. So now let's get into today's topic. I wanted to talk about Anastasia as a historical person, but also the different um, media that have come from her. So if you don't know, there's a movie, it's now on Disney Plus, but it wasn't originally by Disney, um, called Anastasia, like an animated musical kind of Disney princess vibe um, <laughs> of this this story. Um, it's excellent. I watched it as a kid. It's very nostalgic. And then uh, in 2016, I think it was, that movie was turned into a Broadway musical. So there's also an excellent um, Broadway show version of that story. And it kind of goes through um, this story or these rumors about the historical figure, Anastasia, and what might have happened to her because people weren't really sure at the time and there's still some mystery about it now. So I want to talk a little bit about the the movie first. I have um, from Wikipedia some of the plot um, so we can kind of see what the the fictional version of this is, Um, but I definitely recommend watching it if you haven't seen it already. Super cute. So this film is a loose adaptation (laughs) of the legend of the Grand Duchess Anastasia Nikolaevna. I'm sorry, I don't speak Russian. I'm not sure entirely how to pronounce that, but she is from Russia, which, and this story claims that she escaped the execution of her family. And the basic plot centers around an 18-year-old uh, orphan named Anya, who doesn't remember her past, and in hopes of finding some trace of her family, sides with a couple of con men who wish to take advantage of her likeness to the Grand Duchess um, and pass her off as the real Anastasia. And this film also shares the plot with a another film about Anastasia from 1956, which is based on the 1954 play of the same name. So this is not the first time this legend has been turned into a movie or musical. This is a habit. <laughs> this has happened a lot, which I think is, is really interesting. So um, let's get into more of the plot and see, at least in this fictionalized version, like what people find so interesting and engaging. So in 1916, St. Petersburg, Russia, at a ball celebrating the Romanov Tricential, Dowager Empress, Empress Marie gives a music box and a necklace inscribed with the words Together in Paris as parting gifts to her youngest granddaughter, the eight-year-old Grand Duchess Anastasia. The ball is suddenly interrupted by Rasputin, a sorcerer and former royal advisor, until he was exiled for treason. Seeking revenge, Rasputin sells his soul in exchange for an unholy reliquary, which he uses to curse the Romanovs, sparking the Russian Revolution. As revolutionaries siege the palace, Marie and Anastasia escape through a secret passageway with the aid of a 10-year-old servant boy, Dmitri. Rasputin confronts the two royals outside on a frozen river, only to fall through ice and drown. The pair manage to reach a moving train, but as Marie climbs aboard, Anastasia falls and hits her head on the platform, subsequently suffering amnesia. Ten years later, Russia is under communist rule and Marie has publicly offered 10 million rubles for the safe return of her granddaughter. 20-year-old con man Dmitri and his friend slash partner in crime, Vlad, search for an Anastasia lookalike to bring to Paris so that they can collect the reward. Elsewhere, an 18-year-old Anastasia, now called Anya, leaves the rural orphanage where she grew up. Accompanied by the straight puppy she names Puka, she decides to head to Paris, inspired by the inscription on her necklace, but finds she is unable to leave Russia without an exit visa. An old woman advises her to see Dmitri at the abandoned palace. There, the two men are impressed by Anya's resemblance to the real Anastasia and decide to take her with them to Paris. <laughs> Rasputin's albino bat minion, Bartok, who, <laughs> honestly, one of my favorite characters. 
So funny. Um, <laughs> Bartok is nearby, and he notices his master's dormant reliquary suddenly revived by Anya's presence. Um, it drags him into this weird, like, limbo space where he finds that Rasputin has survived. Kind of. <laughs> He's, like, undead. Um, it's it's honestly a little disturbing. Um, it scared me as a child. I have nightmares. But anyway, enraged to hear that Anastasia has escaped the curse, Rasputin sends his demonic minions from the reliquary to kill her, who sabotage the trio's train as they leave St. Petersburg, and later try to lure Anya into sleepwalking off their ship to France. The trio unwittingly foil both attempts um, on Anastasia's life, which forces Rasputin and his little bat minion Bartok to travel back to the surface out of their weird limbo world to kill Anya personally. During their journey, as Dimitri and Vlad teach Anya court etiquette and her family history, Dimitri and Anya begin to fall in love because this is a cute Disney movie. Um, the trio eventually reach Paris and go to see Marie, who has given up on the search after meeting numerous imposters. Despite this, Marie's cousin Sophie quizzes Anya to confirm her identity. Though Anya offers every answer taught to her, Dimitri finally realizes she's the real Anastasia when, without being taught, she vaguely recalls how he helped her escape the palace siege. Sophie, also convinced, arranges a meeting with Marie at the Paris Opera House. There, Dimitri tries to establish an introduction, but Marie refuses, having already heard of Dimitri's initial scheme to con her. Anya overhears the conversation and angrily leaves. Dimitri later abducts Marie in her car to force her to see Anya, finally convincing her when he presents the music box Anastasia dropped during their escape. As Marie and Anya converse, Anya regains her memories, and the two sing the lullaby the music box plays. Marie recognizes Anya as Anastasia, and the two are joyfully reunited. Marie offers Dimitri the reward money the next day, recognizing him as the servant boy who saved them, but to her surprise, he refuses it and leaves for Russia. At Anastasia's return celebration, Marie informs her of Dimitri's gesture, leaving Anastasia torn between staying or going with him. Anastasia walks off, where she is trapped and attacked by Rasputin. Uh, Dimitri returns to save her, but is soon injured and knocked unconscious. In the struggle, Anastasia ma manages to get hold of Rasputin's reliquary and crushes it under her foot, avenging her family as Rasputin disintegrates and dies. Finally, in the aftermath, Anastasia and Dimitri reconcile. They elope, and Anastasia sends a farewell letter to Marie and Sophie, promising to return one day. So that is the whole plot of the movie Anastasia. Now you've seen it. Obviously, it is more like a kid's movie. Um, it does have like Disney princess vibes with the little animal friends slash minions um, <laughs> that, that wander around um, with the main characters. The love plot being one of the main themes of the story. And then also kind of like the magical elements that they bring in with Rasputin and yeah, yeah, mostly him. So this is all really interesting because it is it is very obviously fictional. When we look at like other pieces of media that are based off of historical people or events like maybe Hamilton or, or Newsies or Les Mis, all of which I've talked about on this podcast before. So they don't often stray so far from historical events or from reality, like in bringing this like magic and curse and like undead stuff that the, the movie Anastasia does. And so I think that's really, really interesting to kind of think about just like all of the creative license that they took with this movie. And obviously like stuff with Hamilton and, and other things um, takes creative license as well. We talked a little bit about that last week when looking at the Reynolds pamphlet and um, how that evolved or didn't evolve when getting incorporated into the musical. But usually <laughs> those uh, ahistorical elements aren't as obvious as like a talking bat that's a minion to the magical undead Rasputin who's <laughs> seeking to <laughs> kill all the Romanovs. Yeah, so so there are, there are elements of this that are very obviously ahistorical. But at the same time, 
these are like real people and kind of kind of like a real situation where um, Rasputin is a real person or was a real person. Anastasia was a real person. The Dowager Emperor, Empress Marie, also a real person. And um, there, there were these rumors for a while about whether or not Anastasia survived um, when the rest of her family was executed. So it's interesting. We're going to talk more about this as we go along. But I also wanted to address the musical based on this movie that was made in 1997. The musical adapts this legend and the possibility that Anastasia escaped the execution of her family. So the in pretty much the only parts where the musical is different from the movie is that the musical chose to omit the supernatural elements from the original film. So Rasputin um, isn't in this version, and instead there's a new villain um, called Gleb, who is a general for the Bolsheviks and receives orders to kill Anya. Which is interesting. So they tried to kind of ground it a little bit more in reality um, than the movie did. I have not seen the musical. I would really like to, <laughs> but uh, I have not yet. So maybe one day. Um, but I think that's really interesting too. those kinds of decisions that they've made to try to stick more towards the historical nature of this legend. But the idea that Anastasia survived in the first place is still pretty, uh, I don't want to say unrealistic because it's kind of depressing, but we'll talk about it more in a second. But it, it is it is kind of unrealistic that she did survive. And so whether or not there's magic in it, I don't know if that's the biggest, biggest thing to discuss. Also, note, I did really want to include um, some of the songs from the, the musical and the movie version of Anastasia because they're fun. <laughs> and I enjoyed doing that with like when we've talked about Hamilton and Newsies and Les Mis as I mentioned earlier, but I'm trying to expand this podcast onto more platforms than I'm currently on. And one of those platforms in particular uh, doesn't like <laughs> having like non-royalty free music on uh, included with the, with the content that you upload. Uh, so as I've discovered, as I'm trying to slowly get my content on there. I've gotten a couple copyright claims, which is super cool. Anyway, um, I'm going to announce more about that later and just different like expansion ideas and plans I have for this podcast moving forward as we're creeping closer to the the year mark of History Sleuth, one year of History Sleuth, but I will um, save all those fun announcements for a different time. But you know, if you have any guesses, want to go see if you can find me, be my guest. <laughs> Good try. Okay, so let's talk about the history of the legend of Anastasia. Um, and this is an article by Nancy Bilyeu, and I will put the link to it in my description, of course, as always. Uh, she writes, in July 17th, 1918, Anastasia Romanov, holding her dog, Jimmy, followed the family down the steps to the terrible cellar in Yekaterinburg, where they were told to wait. The White Army was nearing their location, desperate to free the Tsar. Suddenly, the executioners strode in. The family and their servants, arrayed against the far wall, were gunned down by about a dozen men. Anastasia, who had just turned 17, was among the last to die, according to later testimony from the Bolshevik firing squad. Nor did the killers spare her pet. They crushed the dog's head with a rifle butt and tossed him into the truck with the dead. The bodies of the family and their retainers were disfigured, mutilated, and either burned or buried in the forest. But Anastasia refused to stay dead. Hearsay fueled stories about her rumored survival among, along with the many impostors purporting to be her. By some counts, over a hundred Anastasias have emerged mean her tragic tale has morphed into a modern myth. In 1920, a young woman was pulled out of a canal in Berlin and attempted suicide. For months, the woman refused to give her name or say much of anything. Transferred to an asylum, she was told one day by a fellow psychiatric patient that she looked like the Grand Duchess Tatiana, the second oldest daughter. 
Later, when it was clear that she was too short to be Tatiana, the other mental patients wondered if she was actually Grand Duchess Anastasia. The mysterious young woman did not discourage their assumptions. According to the book The Resurrection of the Romanovs, Anastasia, Anna Anderson, and the World's Greatest Royal Mystery by Greg King. While now this may seem laughably far-fetched, it wasn't so outlandish in 1920. In the years immediately after the Russian Revolution, it would not have been so unusual for a young Russian woman to be found in Germany's capital. So-called white Russian communities, noble and upper-crust refugees, who had been stripped of wealth and position, huddled in Berlin and Paris. Those who fled the Bolsheviks by an eastern route, settled in Shanghai, where young Russian women resorted to working as taxi dancers, or paid dance partners, to feed their extended families. Could one of these far-flung, desperate women be the Grand Duchess Anastasia? Although it seems impossible that anyone could have escaped a Bolshevik firing squad, with members handpicked for their willingness to kill the Romanovs, a great deal of uncertainty on who precisely died persisted for years. Vladimir Lenin wanted it that way. The new government released the news that Nicholas uh, II was dead, but it would not confirm the executions of his wife and children. Kaiser Wilhelm and the Empress Alexandra were cousins. She was of the House of Hesse, and Wilhelm did not want her and her children harmed. Lenin had gained control of his country's warring factions by pulling Russia out of the punishing war, and he did not want anything to harm that fragile peace. He played for time with the Germans by offering vague details and denials. And so the rumors flew, ranging from the guards rescuing one or two daughters to the uh, Zarevich Alexei being the one to escape. None of the claimants to be resurrected, Romanov children, then or later, rivaled the fame of the woman in the German mental hospital, who took the name Anna Anderson. She explained the survival of Anastasia by saying that one of the guards realized she was unconscious, not dead, while carrying her out of the cellar, according to the resurrection of the Romanovs. The guard allegedly spirited her away and became her lover, only to die later in a street brawl. As news of Anna Anderson's claims spread, extended family of the Romanovs and former servants made their way to the hospital in Germany. Some said she resembled Anastasia, that the shape of her ears and feet were the same, that her eyes were as blue as the Grand Duchess's, and that her mannerisms reminded them of the princess. To those family members who knew Anastasia best before 1918, Anna Anderson's claims were a painful ordeal. The Dowager Empress Marie, grandmother of Anastasia, refused to meet with her. Although she never spoke publicly of her family's tragedy, it is believed that she accepted reports from the people she trusted that the entire family was slain in Yekaterinburg. She never posted any reward. Anastasia's aunt and Nicholas's sister, the Grand Duchess Olga, visited Anderson in the hospital and afterward lamented, I was looking at a stranger. Empress Alexandra's brother, Louis of Hesse, financed an investigation into his purported niece that concluded Anderson's real identity was that of a mentally, mentally unstable Polish factory worker named Franziska Shanskowska. Newspapers covered the unveiling of Anna Anderson's identity, and it was a, a scandal of its day. Yet some people persisted in believing that this young woman was Anastasia. Anderson lived on the charity of sympathetic monarchists in Germany and the United States, cycling in and out of mental hospitals until she married a Virginia genealogist named John Manahan, 18 years her junior. All the time, she still insisted she was a Romanov princess. The 1984 death of Anna Anderson in Charlottesville, Virginia, filled in some of the last pieces of the puzzle. After the bodies of Tsar Nicholas and his family were exhumed and identified in the 1990s, a subsequent DNA test proved Anderson had no relation to the Russian royal family. Medical tests linked her to the Polish worker Franziska Szanskowska, confirming the story that was broken in German newspapers decades earlier. For 63 years, she had somehow managed to live another woman's existence, and in doing so, inspired a play, a film, television depictions, novels, and now a musical. Anna Anderson once said in English, you either believe it or you don't believe it. It doesn't matter in no way whatsoever. So, um, this is crazy to me, <laughs> especially when like wrestling with the reality of this, like in the movie, it's kind of like, we want to see the reunification of Anastasia with her, with her grandmother. We want to see 
Anastasia survived. We want to believe that she survived. You know, just as the viewers, like we want everything to work out. The couple to get together at the end of the movie, the family to be reunited and everything to be right. But that's not necessarily how real life works, which is just so heartbreaking. And so for this woman, Anna Anderson or Francisca Shanskowska, to be claiming that she's Anastasia and to kind of be like putting the family through this. It's honestly kind of hard to contemplate and hard to read. Can you imagine if your entire family was murdered and then you have this person running around Europe <laughs> claiming to be part of your family, but you don't know whether or not to believe her and you don't think it's true, but still she claims it. It just, it's so hard. It's so hard. And I'm sure the the Romanov family wanted to believe that somebody survived, that um, they got their hopes up for these these sorts of things. And the fact that Anna Anderson isn't the only person that claims to be Anastasia, I think would be would be heartbreaking as well. Just like the the movie version of it, it's like kind of interesting. And we know all along that the main character, Anya, is actually Anastasia. And so we have this hope that it'll all work out. Um, but without that, in real life, kind of holding the story together, I think it, it quickly becomes very, very depressing. And I think it's it's interesting, too. I noticed that people continued believing that Anna Anderson was Anastasia, even after it was proven that she wasn't. And I think that's something I've come across quite often while looking at pieces of disinformation that come up with the current events and throughout history that people don't care about the truth as much as other things. In this case, people were given the option to either hold on to their belief in the story of the survival of Anastasia against all odds or give that up in exchange for the truth that the child Anastasia was murdered along with the rest of her family. The truth is ugly and uncomfortable and, and therefore was unwelcome. I think that makes sense. It's unfortunate, but it makes sense. I, sometimes people just believe what they want to believe. and But but sometimes that causes huge problems, for example, like with COVID and the recent election, but, but other times it's harmless. And I think what people believe about Anastasia is a more harmless instance of this, though I do think it, it probably did cause lots of harm and emotional um, turmoil for her relatives more in the contemporary time. But when it comes to now, if somebody were to respond to this episode of my podcast and be like, hey, I think Anastasia is alive or I'm <laughs> I'm the missing Anastasia over a hundred years old, but I'm her. <laughs> I'd be like, okay, that's not, I mean, that's crazy, but that's not necessarily a harmful, I don't know. It's not as harmful as other pieces of disinformation. Maybe this is just splitting hairs. I don't know. Maybe this doesn't matter. But Moving on, the sentence in in that article that I read, um, Vladimir Lenin wanted it this way, really sticks out to me here because I think it's important to remember that sometimes the truth isn't just misunderstood, but also purposefully miscommunicated. That's the difference between misinformation and disinformation. Misinformation is just wrong unintentionally without any purpose or ulterior motive, but disinformation is intentionally wrong information with the point to spread support of some kind of agenda some kind of ulterior motive. And for Lenin, it was better if this rumor about Anastasia possibly being alive continued to spread because the truth would outrage people um, and possibly start a war with Germany. So yeah, it's crazy. And then no one wanted to believe that children were executed or that Lenin would condone this. So yeah, that's that's more disturbing the longer that I the longer that I sit with that. It's it's so interesting that this like this story of like Lenin consolidating his power is now like a cute Disney princess movie. <laughs> uh, I'm a little disturbed. This is still one of my favorite movies though. I actually have a plant named Anastasia. 
<laughs> I'll post a picture on Twitter or something. I um, own a lot of plants. This is a tangent. <laughs> um, but the one I, I think my sister named her Anastasia, actually. So my, my plant named Anastasia is a, a California fan ivy. And she's wonderful. She's beautiful. She's super, super long. I got like a grow light for for some of my plants um, and she's been loving it and is just stretching up super tall. So <laughs> she's a great vine, my, my Anastasia. Yeah, but anyway, so uh, back to disinformation from <laughs> plants. When we look at disinformation that spreads around the internet today, I think one of the things we need to do besides just correct the information is look for the reason why this lie would be spread. If we can get to the root of the problem and correct the root of the problem or bring attention to it, then we can prevent further disinformation from tricking people. See, this does connect back to plants. We've got to look at the roots. <laughs> we got to look at what it's rooted in, what is feeding this desire to lie about something. Because I don't know, I don't know that I ever really questioned that when, I mean, obviously when originally watching the Anastasia movie, like I was a child, so <laughs> I didn't question anything. But like looking at this as an adult, I don't know that I would have originally questioned like, why did this rumor start? Or why was this rumor so powerful? I don't know that I would have looked into that if I wasn't already researching the history of Anastasia as a person and as a legend. I didn't know any of this stuff about Vladimir Lenin being involved. I don't really have a, a lot of great knowledge about um, Russian history. And so that's not something that I would have picked up on if I wasn't already researching. So yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, so the movie and the musical Anastasia are some of my favorites. And it's really interesting to me to see how that story evolved over time and how these pieces of entertainment walk the line between history and fairy tale. I think it's interesting, too, to compare the, the musical Anastasia to Hamilton, as I was kind of talking about already, since both are real people, but the two musicals are very different. And I think the way that people understand these two shows are very different as well. There's a, there's There are certain elements to Anastasia that I think help the audience understand it as fiction. There's magic that happens throughout the plot. Um, there are very few real historical characters. And because it's history that most Americans are unfamiliar with and unattached to, I think there's not this pressure to believe or need to believe that it's true. And then on the flip side, we've got Hamilton, no magic, all the characters are real historical people. And it's history that most Americans are familiar with or think that they're familiar with and are definitely very attached to. For some people, this hyper-positive and so-called patriotic view of American history is very much part of their identity. So I think it's a bit more difficult for people to understand that what parts what parts of the show Hamilton are fictionalized than it is with Anastasia. So um, I, there are some other myths surrounding Anastasia as well as other people, not just Anna Anderson, that claim to be Anastasia. Um, and so this is from a Wikipedia article. I'm going to struggle a bit with some of these names. I apologize in advance. So some other lesser known claimants were Nadia Ivanova Valisleva and Eugenia, Eugenia Smith. Two young women claiming to be Anastasia and her elder sister, Maria, were taken in by a priest in the Ural Mountains in 1919, where they lived as nuns until their deaths in 1964. They were buried under the names Anastasia and Maria Nikolaevna. Rumors of Anastasia's survival were embellished by various contemporary reports of trains and houses being searched for Anastasia Romanov by Bolshevik soldiers and secret police. While she was briefly imprisoned in Perm in 1918, Princess Helena Petrovna, wife of Anastasia's distant cousin, Prince John Konstantinovich of Russia, reported that a guard brought a girl who called herself Anastasia Romanova to her cell and asked if the girl was the daughter of the Tsar. Helena Petrovna said she did not recognize the girl and the guard took her away. Although other witnesses in Perm later reported that they saw Anastasia, her mothers and sisters, her mother and sisters in Perm after the, the murders, this story is now widely discredited. Rumors that they were alive were fueled by deliberate misinformation designed to hide the fact that the family was dead. 
A few days after they had been murdered, the German government sent several telegrams to Russia demanding the safety of the princess of German blood. Russia had recently signed a peace treaty with the Germans and did not want to upset them by letting them know the women were dead, so they told them that they had been moved to a safer location. In another incident, eight witnesses reported the recapture of a young woman after an apparent escape in September 1918 at a railway station northwest of Perm. These witnesses were Maxim Grigoyev, Tatiana Sitnikova, and her son Fedor Sitnikov, Ivan Kuklin and Matrina Kuklina, Vasily Ryabov, Justinia Varankina, and Dr. Pavel Yutkin, a physician who treated the girl after the incident. Some of the witnesses identified the girl as Anastasia when they were shown photographs of the Grand Duchess by white Russian army investigators. Yutkin also told the Russian white army investigators that the injured girl, whom he treated at Cheka headquarters in Perm, told him, I am the daughter of the ruler Anastasia. Yutkin obtained a prescription from a pharmacy for a patient named N at the orders of the secret police. White army investigators later independently located records for the prescription. During the same time period in mid-1918, there were several reports of young people in Russia passing themselves off as Romanov escapees. Boris Soloviev, the husband of Rasputin's daughter Maria, um, defrauded prominent Russian families by asking for money for a Romanov imposter to escape to China. Solovev also found young women willing to masquerade as one of the Grand Duchesses to assist in deceiving the families he had defrauded. Some biographers' accounts speculated that the opportunity for one or more of the guards to rescue a survivor existed. Yakov Yurovsky demanded that the guards come to his office and return and turn over items they had stolen following the murder. There was reportedly a span of time when the bodies of the victims were left largely unattended in the truck, in the basement, and in the corridor of the house. Some guards who had not participated in the murders and had been sympathetic to the Grand Duchesses were reportedly left in the basement with the bodies. And lastly, we're going to look at the Wikipedia article on the reports of the deaths of the Romanovs, kind of to give us some final information um, and some final evidence to unfortunately debunk the myth that Anastasia survived. So the Yurovsky note is an account of the event filed by Yurovsky to his Bolshevik superiors following the killings, and it was found in 1989 and detailed in Evard Radzinski's 1992 book, The Last Tsar. According to the note, on the night of the deaths, the family was awakened and told to dress. They were told they were being moved to a new location to ensure their safety in anticipation of the violence that might ensue when the White Army reached Yekaterinburg. Once dressed, the family and the small circle of servants who had remained with them were herded into a small room in the house's sub-basement and told to wait. Alexandra and Alexei sat in chairs provided by guards at the Empress's request. After several minutes, the guards entered the room, led by Yurovsky, who quickly informed the Tsar and his family that they were to be executed. The Tsar had time to say only what and turned to his family before he was killed by several bullets to the chest, not, as commonly stated, to the head. His skull, recovered in 1991, bears no bullet wounds. The Tsarina and her daughter Olga tried to make the sign of the cross but were killed in the initial volley of bullets fired by the executioners. The rest of the imperial retinue were shot in short order, with the exception of Anna Denadova, Alexandra's maid. Demidova survived the initial onslaught but was quickly stabbed to death against the back wall of the basement while trying to defend herself with a small pillow she had carried into the sub-basement that was filled with precious gems and jewels. The Yurovsky note further reported that once the thick smoke that had filled the room from so many weapons being fired in such close proximity cleared, it was discovered that the executioner's bullets had ricocheted off the corsets of two or three of the Grand Duchesses. The executioners later came to find out that this was because of the family's the family's crown jewels and diamonds had been sewn inside the linings of the corsets to hide them from their captors. The corsets thus served as a form of armor against the bullets. 
Anastasia and Maria were said to have crouched up against a wall, covering their heads in terror until they were shot down by bullets called, recalled Yurovsky. However, another guard, Peter Ermakov, told his wife that Anastasia had been finished off with bayonets. As the bodies were carried out, one or more of the girls cried out and were clubbed on the back of the head, wrote Yurovsky. In 1991, the presumed burial site of the imperial family and their servants was excavated in the woods outside Yekaterinburg. The grave had been found uh, nearly a decade earlier, but was kept hidden by its discoverers from the communists who were still ruling Russia at the time. The grave only held nine of the expected 11 sets of remains. DNA and skeletal analysis matched these remains to Tsar Nicholas II, Tsarina Alexandra, and three of the four grand duchesses, Olga, Tatiana, and presumably Maria. The other remains with unrelated DNA corresponded to the family's doctor, their valet, their cook, and Alexandra's maid. Forensic expert William R. Maples decided that the Tsarevich, Alexei, and Anastasia's bodies were missing from the family grave. A Russian scientists contested this conclusion, however, claiming it was the body of Maria that was missing. The Russians identified the body as that of Anastasia by using a computer program to compare photos of the youngest Grand Duchess with the skulls of the victims from the mass grave. They estimated the height and width of the skulls where pieces of bone were missing. American scientists found this method inexact. American scientists thought the missing body to be Anastasia because none of the female skeletons showed the evidence of immaturity, such as an immature collarbone, undescended wisdom teeth, or immature vertebrae in the back that they would have been expected to find in a 17-year-old. In 1998, when the remains of the imperial family were finally interred, a body measuring approximately um, 5'7 was buried under the name of Anastasia. Photographs taken of her standing beside her three sisters until up until six months before the murders demonstrate that Anastasia was several inches shorter than all of them. The account of the Urofsky note indicate that the two, indicated that two of the bodies were removed from the main grave and cremated in an undisclosed area in order to further disguise the burials of the Tsar and his retinue, if the remains were discovered by the whites, um, since the body count would not be correct. Searches of the area in subsequent years failed to turn up a cremation site or the remains of the two missing Romanov children. However, on August 23rd, a Russian archaeologist announced the discovery of two burned partial skeletons at a bonfire site near Ekaterinburg that appeared to match the site described in Yurovsky's memoirs. The archaeologist said that the bones were from a boy who was roughly between the ages of 10 and 13 years at the time of his death, and of a young woman who was roughly between the ages of 18 and 23 years old. Anastasia was 17 years and one month at the time of her assassination, while her sister Maria was 19 years, one month old, and her brother Alexei was two weeks shy of his 14th birthday. Anastasia's elder sisters, Olga and Tatiana, were 22 and 21 years old, respectively, at the times of their assassination. Along with the remains of the two bodies, archaeologists found shards of container of sulfuric acid, nails, metal strips from a wooden box, and bullets of various caliber. The site was initially found with metal detectors and by using metal rods as probes. DNA testing by multiple international laboratories included the Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory and... Innsbruck Medical University confirmed that the remains belonged to the Tsarevich Alexei and to one of his sisters, proving conclusively that all family members, including Anastasia, died in 1918. The parents and all five children are now accounted for, and each has his own, his or her own unique DNA profile. While the tests have confirmed that the Romanov bodies have been found, one of the studies was still unsure which body from the two graves was Maria's and which was Anastasia's. So, that's a bit of a heavy note to end on, <laughs> and I think. It, it is disappointing to learn that Anastasia didn't survive and to know so conclusively that Anastasia didn't survive. I think that's part of the reason why the myths and the legends persisted um, and why we still are watching the movie Anastasia on Disney+. Plus. I should be sponsored by Disney+, Plus with how often I've mentioned it. <laughs> watching the movie Anastasia or going to see the musical because we like to think the best. We like to um, hope that against all odds, our main character survives that 
unfair and just absolutely tragic, devastating events like the assassination of an entire family to solidify political power. We want to think those sorts of things don't happen or aren't successful, that evil is defeated and good will rise. But sometimes that's just not how it is. Um, That's just not what happens. But the important thing is that in some sense, evil is not defeated because we have unearthed these lies, sleuthed out these lies, if you will, and worked against the disinformation that's persisted for like a hundred years, <laughs> um, we can we can know now that uh, the story of the survival of Anastasia was not just a um, a hope of the people, though it certainly was that, but also a um, political move on the part of Lenin to avoid war with Germany. And so we have succeeded in, in being discerning and knowing the truth and not being fooled by a century of misinformation. Uh, So that's all I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for sleeping with me. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I will catch you guys on Tuesday. We'll talk about something else. I don't know yet. I haven't written my notes yet. I keep thinking I'm going to get ahead of my podcast, and then I keep not getting ahead of my podcast. So if there's that, don't forget to follow History Sleep wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss it, and rate and review you can. I hope you guys have a great day. Bye.